This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on the show, we have attorney Tom Crossley. Tom's a lawyer here in San Antonio, Texas, and he's a good friend of mine. Tom has had incredible success in doing cases involving traumatic brain injuries, including some great eight-figure verdicts. He speaks about TBIs across the country. I've asked Tom to come join us today to talk about the complexities of handling TBI cases. Every TBI case is different, and oftentimes no one realizes that there's a TBI until we begin working with a client. These cases involve additional expenses and a lot of extra attention to properly work them up. Tom's agreed to come on the show and share some of his expertise with us. I hope you enjoy the show. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing great, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So, what is it that made you that led you to doing cases involving traumatic brain injuries? Uh, that's a good question. So, I think it started with one particular case. So this was mid two thousands, and uh, I represented a forty uh, six year old plumber who had been in a head on collision, and he had suffered a, a neck injury and a shoulder injury, but in in that crash, he was also knocked unconscious for about three minutes. He was taken to the ER. He had a CT scan. It was read as normal. Uh, three weeks later, he had an MRI. It was read as normal. And the lawyer in me and the defense lawyers on the other side were looking at this case like it was just a neck and shoulder injury case. Uh, but the more I worked on it, the more I realized that According to the wife, um, this guy wasn't quite the same as he was before. And so I started um, digging into it, and it, it really came to a head when the defense lawyer took the plaintiff's deposition in the case. Um, normally, if, uh, if you're like me, you want your plaintiff to do really well in the deposition, you might prepare them, and you might get a little nervous when they say the wrong things or they fly off the handle at the defense lawyer or or they act like an ass, or they can't remember their kids' names or birthdays. You know, you think that those things are bad for your case. Well, all those things were happening in this case, yeah. in this deposition. And, and the wife, who'd been married to uh, this man for, for 17 years, was sitting in the room during the videotape deposition, and I could see her face registering with increasing alarm. At, at the demeanor of her husband and his inability to answer what should have been simple questions, seriously, questions like, what are the names and ages of your children? And he could get their names, but he wasn't quite sure their ages. I mean, it was that kind of thing. And so during one of the breaks, she pulls me aside and she says, you know, I knew his memory was bad since the crash, but I didn't really know how bad until I, because I haven't been in a situation where I've seen him being questioned and seeing it all happen at once and by the end of that deposition in my mind it had changed from a neck and shoulder injury case worth 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to a brain injury case worth millions of dollars. And we had plenty of insurance because it was a trucking company on the other side. Um, and so I emerged from that deposition with the intent to try to learn as much as I could about TBI because I had everybody in the case telling me this was not a TBI. I had a normal CT scan. I had a normal MRI. Now, we know nowadays that, that those things should not be barriers to successfully prosecuting a TBI case. But you got to remember 12 or 15 years ago, the, the state of knowledge that we have simply didn't exist. Well, absolutely. And so um, I started reading everything I could on TBI. I got on Medline, and I read literally 70 different articles. And, and so the, the mindset I took was, I believe he has a TBI. I need to convince 12 strangers he has a TBI. How can I do that in the face of these normal uh, tests that he had? Um, and so I started reading articles about how medical science can go about objectively proving the existence of a TBI. And I found an article uh, that came out in the Journal of Neurotrauma, and it was a study of these Iraqi uh, and Afghanistan war veterans that were coming back uh, to the VA out in California with uh, blast-related post-concussion syndrome symptoms. And these were people that uh, may or may not have had orthopedic injuries. They had no outwardly visible signs of brain injury, but they were displaying symptoms that we now know are classically associated with post-concussion syndrome. And there was a real dilemma uh, with uh, VA at the time of, you know, how do you classify these people? Are they, is this depression? Is it post-traumatic stress disorder? Is it uh, post-concussion syndrome due to mild TBI? And um, so the, the government started spending a lot of money to fund research really looking at mild TBI. And, and we call uh, the signature injury of the, of the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan is mild TBI. So anyway, this, this study that I read um, looked at 10 different people in the, in the cohort with normal CT scans and normal MRI scans. And they ran them through some advanced neuroimaging um, magnetoencephalography and diffusion tensor imaging. And they were able to find objectively injury in all 10 of the people that had normal CTs and normal MRIs. Oh, wow. And so when I read that article, I called one of the lead research scientists on it and said, hey, I'm a lawyer in Texas. I've got this client who had a normal CT and normal MRI, but I think he's got a brain injury and he was knocked unconscious. Is there any way that you could test him? And the guys, the doctor says, well, sure, but you might have to write a check to the Board of Regents of the university. I'm like, okay, how much? It was surprisingly little, but this was uh, someone who'd never given a deposition before. They learned. <laughs> <laughs> and so what ended up happening is we flew this particular client out. Uh, he had this very sophisticated testing, and it came back as significantly abnormal. That case... Because it was a mild TBI and the person looked normal, I could not get it settled for what I thought was fair value. Um, and, you know, he had all the Glasgow coma scale was normal. I mean, you know, all the things that are difficult for us. And so we ended up trying the case. Uh, I later learned it was the first case in the country where evidence from magnetoencephalography was admitted in trial in support of a claim of mild TBI. And we ended up getting a, uh, 
a fantastic uh, verdict in that case. And you're allowed and, to say how much on this podcast. We, we have no shame here. Okay. So it was a $16 million verdict in a case where the top offer was $750,000 before trial. Um, and fortunately, there was plenty of insurance coverage in that case, and it promptly got resolved afterward. And that is how I got started in TBI. That's a nice introduction. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a lot of what... You know, it was interesting to me, and I think the Medline, going going to the Medline, but it's, you know, what did you do to gain the expertise to go from not have having handled a TBI case to being able to get an eight-figure verdict on a TBI case? Yeah, I'm a reader by nature. My favorite way of, of digesting new information is to read. And so, seriously, I spent a lot of time reading medical literature. And then once I realized that there's a lot out here that probably isn't making it into the courtroom yet. Um, then I started attending conferences, and I started with a legal conference. I think it was an AAJ conference. Uh, there's a traumatic brain injury litigation group within AAJ that you and I are both members of. Um, and then I quickly learned that there was a medical conference. Uh, it was called North American Brain Injury Society, and it had, at the time, a handful of lawyers in it. Um, and there were about 300 healthcare professionals, brain injury doctors, and there would be a medical track going on in one uh, big room and a legal track in a small room across the hall. That's where I first went and learned. And so I went to that, and I would read all the medical papers, and I'd find out what's the cutting-edge science uh, that we can use as lawyers to help prove that these invisible injuries are real. Um, and so I started going to a lot of NABUS uh, conferences. I started meeting other lawyers who do what we do. More importantly, I think, I started meeting other doctors who are kind of at the, at the forefront of uh, this. And then when you see doctors speak, if you get to see 20 doctors deliver a talk at a conference, you can figure out pretty quickly which ones might be good in front of a jury. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I've forged some of those relationships and uh, learned as much as I could about uh, how to go about proving the injury. And it's not all brain science. You know, it's a, lot of human, it's a lot of human stuff involved as well. For example, um, one of the most important things in a brain injury case, I think, besides having some good neuroimaging, is uh, a lot of before and after witnesses. Because the defense in these cases is usually something along the lines of, this injury isn't real. You can't see it. How do we know it's real? And so if the defense is it may not be real and the client may be faking it, then if you have 15 people from, that knew the, the patient before and knew the patient after, and they're from all walks of that patient's life, it could be school, it could be work, it could be home, it could be friends, family, softball team, golf acquaintances, whatever it is, if you get enough of them, and they all tell a story that is consistent with one of your TBI symptoms in the case, then the jury either has to conclude that, wow, that's a lot of people that are lying to benefit this guy when they really have nothing in it, or this injury might be real. And so I think it's, it, it's important not just to focus on the science part, but to focus on the human part and try to get as many people other than your injury victim to to be able to relate symptoms consistent with TBI in a meaningful, impactful way. 
I agree, and you know that's so much time to do that. I mean, because you have to have someone, and usually it has to be you, because no one no one ever does something as well as you do when it's a a big case. Uh, talk to a lot of people, and you know we used to just because of time constraints do that further towards the end. Well, if we go to trial, we'll start doing that. Uh, but then we've had a few times. You know, the problem with all this neuroimaging it proves that you have a problem. It doesn't prove when you got the problem, and you know, we've had a couple cases where $100,000 into the case, we've started the interviews, and you know some are okay, and some are, well, he, she was kind of forgetful before. Well, he always had a temper. And you know we've learned the hard way to put the time in early while we're deciding, is this something that we want to do? Because I've gone in my career from, hey, this might be a TBI case, and getting all excited and saying, oh, this might be a TBI case. Like, <laughs> You know, if it's there, great. I mean, because, you know, and, and we want to do the work, and they can be very uh, lucrative. But at the same time, you know, it is a lot of work. It's a big fight. It's a lot of money. And when you bet wrong, um, you know, if you don't do that screening up front, you can lose a lot of money or get a settlement just to get your expenses back and have to give up your fee. Um, it's kind of like, uh, like playing poker. When you get a really good hand... You get all excited about it, but you're either going to lose a lot of money or or win a lot of money. Yeah, it, it's, it's so it's. Uh, I've done both. <laughs> well, so you've gone from having that one case where you had uh, incredible success to now where you you're focusing your practice on TBI. I know you have other lawyers at your firm that do other kinds of cases, but you you seem to focus on TBI. Tell me, what was that process like? How did you become a specialist, and then? How did you get enough cases uh, to focus your practice on, on brain injuries? Yeah, so a lot of uh, referrals came in after that first verdict um, because, and you got to remember the time frame a decade ago, it was still, a lot of these cases were being tried on the plaintiff side and on the defense side with neuropsychologists and, and what some people call soft science without any hard objective way to verify the existence or non-existence of an injury. And um, I think a jury is far more likely to give you good damages when they have less doubt about the existence of the injury, right? That's common sense. Um, so I started getting more cases and started working them up from a very scientific standpoint. Um, what is the latest cutting edge science that I think will make it past Daubert and get admitted into a courtroom? And how can I build a case around that? And so I'm a, I'm a big believer in the sequence of your evidence at trial makes a difference in the outcome of the trial. Um, and so when I'm sequencing a TBI case, I want to lead off with my most irrefutable evidence that this is a real traumatic brain injury. So, for example, um, I would uh, start off with some evidence that shows objectively that there's uh, a lesion in the brain or blood or hemocytorin deposits or some kind of something like that. What's, I'm sorry, what's hemocytorin yeah. just for people? Uh, it's the, uh, the dried up remains of blood product within the brain. Okay. So I started doing more and more cases uh, to where um, I was hiring a lot of experts. I was taking a lot of defense neuropsychology uh, depositions. I was seeing how defense lawyers in various parts of the state were defending these cases. Um, 
and then I ultimately had to try another few cases. And after trying a few more cases and getting good results, um, I've got a pretty steady stream now of uh, TBI cases. So at any given time, I'm working on a half a dozen major brain injury cases. Um, and that, uh, that amount of volume sounds just about right to me because it's enough for me to justify traveling around, going to all the conferences, spending all the time reading the articles. I'm kind of um, passionate about the science behind it, and I had gotten a little bit, I don't want to say jaded, but a little bit bored with the normal herniated disc spine injury case because I'd done countless numbers of those. So, and I'd, and I'd learned that medical science a long time ago. Uh, and this is something that there, no matter how much you know about the brain, you will never know everything there is to know. Yeah. And so it, it, to me, it just seems like a, a field that is, that is uh, challenging. Uh, and you can take your case with some limitations almost anywhere you're, you're willing to try to take your case. Does that make sense? It does. And... Uh... And I guess really the verdicts, like that success breeds success or success begets success. So the, I guess the better you did at it, the more opportunities you had to do it. But it's interesting you say that, you know, you get a steady volume, but that volume is like six. I mean, do you think you could handle 50 of these cases in, for one lawyer or 40 of these cases for one lawyer? Oh, that would be hard. Um, I don't know that you could handle them as well um, because then you'd have to start cookie cuttering certain things, which I don't. Um, I don't think works very well. So just as no two snowflakes are alike, no two brain injuries are alike. And that's, that's one weird thing about a brain injury case. You could have the exact same thing happen to two different people's brains, but the, the outcome could be highly variable, even more so than in a spine injury case. So patient one might get knocked unconscious in an uh, intersection collision at 60 miles per hour, and uh, come to five minutes later and end up with a normal CT scan and normal MRI scan and have symptoms that resolve six weeks later. And patient two may have the exact same injury but have symptoms that never resolve. Maybe they get better but they plateau and that patient has what they call a chronic post-concussion syndrome. Um, and there's lots of things you need to do early in patient two's case to make sure it's postured the best way you can for the trial that might be coming down the road. And if you haven't done those things within the first year of patient number two's case, then patient number two won't have a very good result in their trial. Yeah, I hate that. I have cases that come in, you know, someone else has held on to the case two, three years, then they bring us in and the client clearly has something going on but the ability to prove to a jury that a diagnosis that was made three years after a, a crash, you know, I, I don't have the confidence that I have that skill set uh, to reliably convince people that and invest, you know, substantial amounts of my own money. And so we have to pass on cases just because it didn't get started in time. Well, I took a case that fits that fact pattern um, maybe five years ago. And it was more than two years after the crash. It was an intersection collision. A young college-age woman had a pretty bad head injury. Uh, she was unconscious. She had bleeding in the brain. She had uh, a scalp laceration. Uh, she was taken emergently from the scene of the crash. It was a high-speed crash. Well, that's a little different than what I'm talking about. Well, let me, let me finish okay. to the, the oh, story, though. <laughs> um, and she had a 
she had a CT scan that showed a little bit of abnormality and then an MRI scan three weeks later or so that was normal because the, the blood and the CT had resolved rather quickly. And her doctor told she was having really bad headaches and her doctor said, oh, you know, this stuff's going to go away. It'll, it'll get better on its own. So three weeks after the crash was her last doctor visit. Wow. And she was in the hospital for a few days after this happened. And the lawyer that had the case had already filed suit and it had been more than two years. And then it got referred to me. And I remember meeting with this pretty young college-age girl and she starts telling me about the symptoms she's having and she's you know got headaches and sometimes they're so bad that she has to turn off the lights and lay down on the couch and sometimes this happens to her at work where she's working in a copy center and she goes in the boss's office and so this is a really disruptive injury for this woman it's now been two and a half years since the injury and she describes some other symptoms and i'm like okay so when's the last time you talked to a doctor about this and she says i haven't and i said well if this is still a problem, don't you think you ought to go see a doctor about it? And <laughs> it ultimately led to, if I'm going to handle your case, you need to go back and start seeing a doctor. But the problem was the defense in the case became, um, for 23 months, there's no documentation of any symptom related to this lady's TBI. Right. From three weeks after the crash until Crosley got involved, there yeah. is no documentation of any symptoms. She went to her OB or her GYN doctor. She went to this other doctor. She had a cold. Nobody's talking about any of these other symptoms. And so the defense became, it's probably not real because, right, if it was real, wouldn't you expect her to go to the doctor? Isn't that what juries think? That, that, that's my fear. <laughs> so if I, the case ultimately settled, I spent a lot of money on the case and a lot of time, and it settled for way less than it should have settled for. Um, but I didn't want to try it because of that problem and a social media problem that, that this, in other words, she had put stuff on social media that had no business being on social media that I thought I couldn't run from. Um, and so if I had gotten that case three weeks after the crash, instead of a year, two, two years and three months after the crash, the outcome would have been completely different because as long as she was symptomatic, she would have had somebody in her corner saying, Hey, don't you think you should, you know, follow up with this doctor? He told you that you would probably get well, but you haven't gotten well. Maybe you need a second opinion. I mean, there would be somebody kind of nudging her toward getting uh, a diagnosis. And if she can't get a diagnosis, at least documenting those symptoms. And let's face it, somebody with a brain injury needs somebody to help steer them in the right direction. I mean, we obviously can't diagnose this as lawyers, but we certainly can recommend that our clients go back to the doctor and tell them you're still about yeah. Tell me some problems. Why do you think? I mean, I've read one study that even in the, in the emergency room where they ought to be looking for this stuff, you know, more than fifty percent of TBI are missed. That's and a, then I imagine a family doctor, or, you know, a chiropractor, you know, even a neuro uh, neurosurgeon who's really looking for a neck or back thing. You know, they're much higher percentage. Why do you think so many doctors miss these? Yeah, that's there's a that famous study. Fifty six percent of TBIs in the ER are not even diagnosed. Uh, I think some of the reasons that they refer to even in that article are that there might be other orthopedic injuries that tend to get the attention. If you've got a bone sticking out of your leg and a severe concussion, what do you think the doctors are paying more attention to in the ER? Uh, secondly, there's not a whole lot of um, 
traditionally in medical school a lot of training that doctors are getting on, on what to do with concussion patients. Um, I had one doctor who's an expert in one of my cases tell me that in all four years of medical school they spent maybe two or three hours on mild TBI. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think some of the reason that they get missed are it's, it's an invisible injury. You know, in the ER setting, you think about what are they trying to do emergently. They're trying to stabilize the patient and they're trying to make sure that there's not something life-threatening that's going to uh, harm that patient if they don't deal with it now, right? So if a patient shows up in an ER with a complaint of head trauma, um, chances are very good that they're going to get a CT scan, right? Every ER in the country has a CT scanner. Uh, and when they run that patient through the CT scan, the CT is really sensitive at picking up fractures and at seeing blood. And so when they do a CT of your head in the emergency room, they're looking for a skull fracture, which doesn't usually exist, never exists in a mild TBI, right? Because by definition, if there's a skull fracture and bleeding in the brain, it's no longer a mild TBI. Uh, so they're looking for a fracture or they're looking for blood in the brain. And so... And then when they find blood in the brain, they're really looking, is it the kind of blood that, that is going to grow and, and, and continue to bleed and create a problem that, do we need to call a neurosurgeon? Do we need to call them now to come down and do some kind of emergency surgery? Or can we just watch this patient? So often, if you have a more serious TBI case and they get that CT scan and there is blood in the brain, there might be a repeat CT a few hours later to see whether there's now more blood or less blood. Uh, so they can see how it's resolving. Do you remember that that famous case of the actor Liam Neeson's uh, wife, uh, who was in a snow skiing yeah, Natasha accident? Bridgerton. Yeah, and she had uh, a slow evolving brain bleed, and, and no one thought there was something wrong with her at first. Right, and so that's part of the reason they're doing a CT scan is they're looking. So if she had had a CT, they would have seen some blood in her brain. And they would have monitored her, and they might have done a repeat one, and they could see it evolving, and uh, it could have saved her life had she had that treatment. So that's kind of what I think the mentality is in the ER, is they're really just looking for fracture of blood. If they don't see it, they're done. And they're going to you know, move on to the next body part or to the next patient. One other thing I think that's an issue is that you know physicians are paid by the visit by insurance companies. And so... Whether they spend 45 seconds with a patient or they spend 30 minutes with a the patient, they get the same amount of money, and that amount of money is being cut down every year. Uh, and I just don't think they, they take the time to listen. There is a recent study that I think it's 11 seconds was the average amount of time a patient had to, to give a history before they got interrupted by the doctor. 11 seconds. So how do they you know, find what's wrong with these things? The clients don't know. The patients don't know they have a TBI. And I think that's a huge, huge issue and why they really need us to advocate for them. Yeah. Well, and there was that mindset. Uh, the, the defense in that big case that we talked about earlier in the podcast um, was, hey, he just got his bell rung. Yeah. <laughs> so do you remember when, if you played, you know, junior high football and everybody playing junior high football at some point gets their, quote, bell rung? I think there was uh, this misperception that um, – somebody that gets a brain injury is probably going to get well. Um, there's a lot of, um, actually that's a true statement. Most people that get uh, mild TBIs do get well. There's a lot of studies on this, but uh, 
the studies suggest that about 15% of the people that have mild TBIs will end up with chronic uh, persistent post-concussive syndrome. You know, some of the studies suggest that number is even higher. Uh, some suggest it's a little lower, but the, all those studies kind of coalesce at the 15 to 20% mark. And Which so, is still a lot of people when you think about how many mild TBIs there are every year. And so what I see in almost every case is some doctor early in the case saying um, to the plaintiff, uh, yeah, you're, these symptoms you're having, they're probably going to get better. Give it another six weeks. Give it another three months. And so what usually happens, though, is six weeks later or three months later, there's no follow-up because nobody schedules them to come back. Um, and so they're released to follow-up care. So I think if you were to ask me, what are the things that lawyers who get hired on these cases should be doing early to ensure that they can have the best possible chance at winning their case? I would tell you number one is make sure that the patient, as long as they are having symptoms, that those symptoms are getting documented in the medical record. So any, any client of mine, if I see them, and their report, I have them fill out a concussion screening questionnaire, and then I have them put a list of what symptoms they're currently having, what symptoms did they have in the past, which ones have resolved, which ones are still a problem. And then if they're not currently seeing a doctor for any of those symptoms, then I encourage them to go back to their doctor and make sure the doctor understands what problems they're still having. Um, you don't want to end up at trial with a big gap in the medical records that is silent as to these life-changing symptoms your patient is having. And honestly, that's no different than the advice you would give to a friend, to a family member. I mean, if my son or my wife or one of my friends is having problems, and a lot of people I know, including myself, are stubborn about going to the doctor, I would implore them, hey, you need to go back and let the doctor know you're still having problems. Just because the doctor said you should probably get better, if you're not, you need to go back. Uh, I mean, I have this conversation at home nothing to do with lawsuits all the time so I don't see why people say it's so sinister that if we have a client who has obviously has a problem that we suggest go back to your doctor and, and ask your doctor to help you no I don't I think that's the best service we can provide is just to make sure they're getting appropriate follow-up care and I've seen you what are some of the other challenges uh, besides the fact that these things get misdiagnosed are missed so often by their doctors. What are some other challenges you see in these cases? Well, it's, uh, it's an invisible injury, and um, the symptoms from the injury can also be described from things that aren't brain injury. For example, it could be um, if you were to draw a Venn diagram, for example, of, of all the, if you were to list all the symptoms that a patient could have that are consistent with TBI. Uh, it could be uh, memory problems, uh, a mental fatigue, uh, dizziness, uh, sleeplessness, irritability, mood changes, uh, tinnitus, uh, balance problems. I mean, you list, make a long list. That's what I do in every case. I try to identify what are their symptoms. If you, for everything on that list, there's probably something else that could also cause it. Um, it could be age. It could be depression. It could be post-traumatic stress disorder. It could be some kind of psychiatric history. And so the challenge for us in these cases is to figure out um, how we can prove that those symptoms in this case are related to brain damage and not related to something else. And so my Venn diagram example is you might have um, 
three circles that you draw. One circle would encompass your depression symptoms. Another circle might encompass your PTSD symptoms. And a third circle might encompass your TBI symptoms. And they're all going to overlap, is my point. And so that's, that's another reason why these cases are uh, difficult. Often there's a misdiagnosis. So it might be TBI related, but somebody has come across and said they think it's psychiatric. Um, it's no secret that the rate of uh, people with persistent post-concussive syndrome, in other words, people that don't do well following brain injury, that rate is double if they've had a previous psychiatric history. So if you've had a major depressive episode at some point in your life and then later have a head injury, you're twice as likely to get a major depressive episode following your head injury as as compared to people that never had the depression previously. So then the insurance company or defense lawyer is going to hire someone to say, oh, it's all from the prior. So what do you do about that? Uh, And that was the issue in that first case we uh, talked about. So um, what we did in that case was I went back and and, um, basically hired the doctor who diagnosed that first depression. And we looked at what were the factors associated with that depression. And he'd had an on-the-job injury, and he was out of work for several months. Uh, and it was, it was a back injury. It had nothing to do with a brain injury. And he was depressed because this is a breadwinner in his family that couldn't work. And so we were able to show why that, that depression was different. And, um, but it's just you got to spend the time. Yeah. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. What are some other challenges you've seen? I know that you've We've talked about two. I've seen you speak at seminars where you talk about like six big ones you, you've categorized them to. Yeah. So, okay, a third problem is that two neuropsychologists evaluating the same patient may reach different conclusions regarding the existence of a TBI. Uh, Especially this, when one is hired by an insurance company. <laughs> always. 100% likelihood <laughs> uh, if the other uh, guy is hired by an insurance company because otherwise you're not going to hear from him, Right. They're not going to designate him as a witness unless he's going to be contrary to what your neuropsych is going to say. But that's one of the challenges of the field of neuropsychology. It is a, it is a soft science, so conclusions can be drawn from data sets, from very sophisticated uh, testing that could take a day or two days. Um, and two different neuropsychologists looking at the same data might reach different conclusions. And that, before we had advanced neuroimaging that we have access to now in 2018, um, that's how brain injury cases were tried, if, especially if it was a mild case where there wasn't any objective finding of, of bleeding on the brain or something like that. So uh, what do you do about that when you have the battle of the neuropsychologists? Well, the antidote to that, I think, is um, having some objectively verifiable uh, neuroimaging finding because the defense neuropsychologists can't do anything with that. And so when you say objectively verifiable neuroimaging findings, I mean, I think what kind of imaging, because, you know, the, the CAT scan is often normal. The MRI 
not only are they often read as normal, but then a lot of times the MRI readers, the doc, the radiologists, no one is telling them, you know, look for the very subtle findings of a diffuse axonal injury because what I've seen is that you can't just look at the film, but when you're in the machine, you have to like start adjusting the contrast because there are these little, you know, the, the stuff that will show up on a regular MRI can be these little white dots, usually at the gray-white junction, and if you don't have the contrast adjusted, they just kind of blend in. And, you know, if the neurologist, one, doesn't know how to look for them, and I'm not sorry, the neurologist, the radiologist, and then two, take the time to go through the, to find them, because I've had multiple cases where the MRI was read as normal, the client then gets more advanced imaging, and as part of that, the neuroradiologist looks at the prior MRI and says, hey, there are these findings that were actually present on the one that was read as normal, and then I go back to that original radiologist, show it to him, and he goes, oh yeah, that was there, I missed it, I'm sorry. Yeah. I've had that happen quite a bit too. So I th there's a couple of reasons why I think that happens. <clears throat> Number one, that original clinical radiologist, how many scans is he reading in a day? 40, right? How much time, oh, is, he that. How much time is he spending on that brain MRI? That's part one. Part two, does he know the reason that the patient had the brain MRI, right? So often the radiologist only knows what's in the reason for ordering test. And I've had plenty of brain injury cases where nobody filled that in. And if you feel that in is um, patient had a major brain trauma six months ago and is still having the following symptoms, then the radiologist is probably going to pay uh, closer attention when they're reading that scan, looking for certain things. Um, but if, you, if that's not filled in and the clinical radiologist is just reading his 50th brain scan that day, he may not be looking for things that would be consistent with trauma or sheer, energy, uh, sheer injury or diffuse uh, axonal injury or axonal deafferentation or all the things that, that if they are clued in in advance, they could spend more time to find. And someone who went to you know, medical school 30 years ago that spends all day looking at spine MRIs or even gallbladder uh, scans or something, they might not have the training for how to look for these subtle findings. So I had a case uh, that sometimes I will I'll talk about and show some of the images from in my speeches, but it was an elderly man who had a brain injury uh, when he was struck from behind by an 18-wheeler in a small town in East Texas. So if small towns in East Texas, the highway becomes Main Street as it comes into town. And so he's on Main Street at a stoplight, but it's the first stoplight uh, in the town. And this trucker was early in the morning and I think half asleep at the wheel and just plowed right into the back of him and launched this small pickup truck, uh, which was waiting to turn left in the post office, launched it down the road and it hit a telephone pole. And so the guy struck his head, this 70 something year old man, he had the back of his head struck by the headrest and he had a hematoma on the back of his head and the front, uh, but on his, uh, his MRI that was ordered clinically, they found some white spots at the gray-white junction, and the radiologist read it as probably age-related changes. And so that was tough, right? Because the defense in the case is saying, hey, this is a 70-something-year-old man. Yeah. You don't have any evidence of a brain injury. And the guy at the hospital that read the scan right after this happened said it's age-related changes. Now, I had, I had developed a lot of evidence in the case from he was a maintenance man at an area high school and he was having difficulty with work and relationships and lots of changes reported by family members and wife and, 
and a great story about how he you know couldn't he took a lock apart to fix a lock and he had all the pieces out and he couldn't put it back together wow and this had been his job for 30 years um so we got all the imaging from that case. This is what I tell every lawyer. Get every piece of imaging that exists from as far back in time as you can go and then send it to a neuroradiologist and pay that neuroradiologist whatever it takes to spend the time to go through all the images. So what we did in this case is when, when my retained neuroradiologist looked at that same scan, he said, you know, I see how this uh, other radiologist called it age-related changes, but I think it's a diffuse axonal injury. I think it's a, a shear along the gray-white junction. Here's why I think so. It's at the contra-coup of where the initial injury was. If we look back on the scan, we can see he's still got swelling on the back left side of his head, and it's the right front uh, side of his head where the shear injury is. It lines up perfectly with where you would expect that to be. Because the brain bounces back and forth within the skull? Yep. And, uh, and then secondly, if it was really age-related, we would expect to see these white spots at other areas of the brain, and he didn't see them at other areas of the brain. And so all of that kind of pointed to this is likely a shear injury, and it's a pretty big white spot, so a pretty big shear injury. Um, that, that radiologist gave a deposition in the case. I did it as a trial deposition, a show and tell, and uh, I think that's what led to that case settling because prior to that evidence being developed there was no interest on the trucking company in paying the kind of money that we thought they should pay after that deposition everything changed yeah and so what kind of neuroimaging do you recommend then to try to to show these invisible injuries and make them visible yeah so um i like i prefer the neuroimaging to be ordered um by treating physicians in the case but if it's not then then we'll get it ordered forensically uh but i like to have a uh, a 3T MRI. What's so, a, what does 3T mean? So T stands for Tesla, and it's a um, uh, unit of measurement of magnet strength of an MRI. And so your typical clinical scanner is a 1.5T machine. Um, but when they do brain scans, they will often request a 3T machine. So it'll give um, a, a more detailed image, and you want to give yourself every opportunity to find what might be there. Uh, so you want the best ability to take that image. So a 3T scan, and then we'll often uh, want it to have what's called susceptibility weighted imaging, uh, which will, it's a certain way to run the sequence through the MRI, which will make it more likely to find any blood or blood uh, deposits or hemosiderin deposits. Um, and you also want to look for um, diffusion tensor imaging if you can get it. So for those that that aren't familiar with it, diffusion tensor imaging is another uh, very specialized way of running an MRI scan that looks at the movement of water molecules through an axon. And so if you think about a, a brain cell uh, being a very long fiber, if you can run a diffusion tensor image and you can determine it, are the water molecules running through that fiber, are they being disrupted? Uh, imagine, say, a, a garden hose. And if you were to kink the garden hose, the movement of water through that hose wouldn't be the same as if it were unkinked. Or if you were to cut, damage, tear, twist. And so that's what a DTI is looking at. It's looking at whether there's a disruption of the movement of water molecules through the brain uh, cells. And if you can run a DTI test, 
then sometimes they can find areas of brain where there's abnormal movement from which they can conclude that uh, this is an area of brain that's been damaged. Um, so those are two things that I like to do, the MRI with SWI and DTI. Um, another thing I like is um, some kind of testing like magnetoencephalography, which is um, a pretty expensive machine that, that measures brainwave activity. And uh, so the brain is putting out a magnetic uh, <clears throat> signal. And if it is a normal, awake, alert adult, uh, that signal should be within a certain range. But if um, the brain shouldn't normally uh, put off very slow waves in a awake, alert adult. So they'll run this test called MEG on a patient who's awake, alert, and being quizzed. Um, and then they'll go back and study it to see whether there's abnormal slow wave activity. And it's a measure of brain function, right? So whereas an MRI is just a picture, and you can take an MRI of somebody recently deceased, if you take it soon enough before there's decomposition, you won't be able to tell whether that person is alive or dead. It's just a picture. Uh, but an MEG, uh, if you do that on somebody who's deceased, you'll have a flat line. So you can look at the actual function of various regions of the brain in an MEG scanner. And uh, if there's abnormalities there, uh, of course you have to rule out other potential causes, uh, such as tumor, stroke, epilepsy, certain types of drugs. But once you do that, you're left with the conclusion that this abnormal brain function uh, is most likely related to trauma. Um, and so those are the tests I like to look at, are MEG and MRI with SWI and DTI. Um, I would do that in every case if, if I had the opportunity, but not every case gives us that opportunity. Why is that? Because these tests can be pretty expensive. And so you have to look at what is your budget. So if you're doing a, a TBI case with a $100,000 insurance policy, you're probably not going to spend the money to do the tests we've just described. If you're doing a TBI case with a $10 million insurance policy, you probably are. And then at some point, you have to decide in between those numbers, what, what are you going to do? Because I've unfortunately had TBI cases where, yeah, just our out-of-pocket expenses are $200,000, yeah. $300,000 by the end of the case. I just finished one where we had $190-something thousand dollars in out-of-pocket expenses. So let's, I've heard a debate among TBI lawyers as to whether or not, uh, whether neuropsychology, neuropsychological evaluations are valuable. Some people still swear by them. Some people say, look, since you can get two doctors to read the same results two different ways, it's voodoo to a jury, they, they just don't even bother with them. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I've heard that debate. And there are some really good lawyers that think that you shouldn't use a neuropsychologist. I disagree. I believe that neuropsychologists are valuable and it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle that I think is important to present, um, we're building a wall of evidence with individual bricks. And a neuropsychologist to me is kind of a cleanup hitter that, that puts all the other pieces together. So I want a neuroradiologist, I want a neurologist, sometimes I'll use a neuroscientist just to give brain 101. And our juries today are, are far more knowledgeable about brain injury and the potential long-term devastating effects associated with brain injuries that occur in your youth thanks to all the publicity around football and yeah. NFL. 
Um, so they know that bad things can happen to you later in life from injuries that occur in your youth, even uh, injuries that once were thought to be mild brain injuries. Um, but so I want a neuroscientist to, to basically give Brain 101 education. Uh, I'd like a neurologist. Um, I'd like a neuropsychologist to tie it all together for me and show why um, you know, he may be normal in certain types of tests, but when we get to areas of executive function, uh, higher level thinking, um, ability to sustain attention in the presence of distraction, these kind of things that are real world examples, um, the neuropsychologists, I think, can usually do a pretty good job of showing how this will affect somebody in, in real life. And also, one more thing I want to say about neuropsychology is, very commonly, the TBI won't have affected a patient's IQ, right? So you might have a uh, above average IQ and then have a TBI, and you've still got an above average IQ. And the defense is going to come in and say, look, his testing is still off the charts. He's better than 90% of the people out there. And so you need a neuropsychologist to come in and explain why that's irrelevant. Um, because that IQ test was taken in a pristine environment with no distractions. Um, and when's the last time, Michael, that you got to work in a pristine environment with no distractions? Well, I, I do uh, from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. at home are uh, in hotel rooms. Yeah. So if you're like most people, that, that's rare, right? And, and so the TBI, especially a frontal lobe type injury, has affected somebody's ability to, to sustain attention. And once they lose their train of thought, it's gone. And so a neuropsychologist, I think, can do a good job of explaining those things. I think they're valuable witnesses. I agree, especially in, in explaining that when you're doing one thing at a time, you can seem normal, but when you're then put out in the real world, we have to do with two or three things at a time. Like, I've got to remember where I'm driving, I have to drive the car, and I have to deal with my kids fighting in the back seat. I'm going to forget where I'm driving or I'm going to crash my car because I can't deal with all three of those over brain injury, whereas luckily I don't, and I can. It's annoying, but I can deal with it. Um, I also think an advantage of neuropsychologists is I think they're the most likely to refer our clients to some cognitive therapy and, and other kinds of therapy to help them try to get some recovery and also try to get them to learn coping skills to deal with the depression, the anxiety, everything else that, that arises naturally out of the fact that your brain's not working right anymore and you've got to live this way and you don't, you know, it's hard to handle. And, you know, I think as, as human beings, not only do we want to get the proof, but we also want our clients to get some kind of relief uh, between when we meet them and the time of trial. Well, and also part of the life care plan in a brain injury case usually sets aside money for future neuropsychological evaluations. And so if you're not having them now, then how are you going to prove that you're going to need them in the future? That's something with all the other treatment, too. You, you know, I've talked to lawyers, and they have like a $19 million life care plan, but the clients had no treatment for a year and a half. It's like, how, you know, yes, I can see the client needs all this treatment. It's horrible the client's not getting it. But at least in Texas where we can, you know, advance money or finance things, I, I would rather spend some money and, you know, one, the client gets the benefit, but two, I think the life care plan is more easy, easier to swallow when the treatment's already been there, especially if it's shown some improvement. I mean, I think jurors need hope. There needs to be a reason. I mean, if it's like, this person's ruined, their life's gonna suck forever no matter what you do, they ought to compensate a lot for that, but what's the motivation? Whereas if you're gonna say, 
the defendant really messed them up, but here's some ways that you can help. It's expensive, but you can do it, and it will make a, a positive. They won't be back to normal, but you can make a positive difference in their lives. I think human beings are much more motivated to help out in that situation. I would agree. And um, I think, you know, another thing to think about is almost all uh, brain injury experts will agree that after about two years post-injury, the patient's gotten about as much recovery as they are likely to get. But they will also agree that therapy, continuing cognitive therapy, may help and won't hurt. And so it's usually not difficult to get even sometimes defense life care planners to, to agree that if money were no object, we would continue to provide therapy on an ongoing basis through this patient's life. And not just the cognitive therapy, but the other therapies on how, not just for you, but for your family. Uh, and I know there's sometimes a question about whether it's legally recoverable, the damages for the, for the spouse that has to deal, I mean, loss of consortium is, but the medical treatment, and I think it should be, the spouse that has to deal with this person, how do you live with someone who's not the person you married? Uh, how, how do you learn to process that you know, your father is going to sometimes scream and yell at you for no real reason or not be able to be as emotionally available to you, and how do you deal with that as a child? You know, this, this is not just an injury to the person, but a brain injury is really an injury to the whole family unit, and that's, again, something that takes a lot of time for us to develop, uh, but it's the reality of what our clients and their families go through. And so I've often had neuropsychologists sit down with family members of the patient as well to provide that family counseling, and then I'll see it in the in a life care plan, a projection of some future medical cost where there might be some component of family counseling. Um, and I think all those pieces fit together. I agree. Uh, yeah. I think another thing, you know, as we're doing these is to really interview the life care planners because just like you and I can't cookie cutter a TBI case, like I've learned the hard way. I cannot handle a bunch of these cases. I have to be selective and I have to learn. If I'm going to handle TBI cases, I have to say no to a lot of other cases because they, they deserve and take a lot of time to do right. Uh, the life care planners, some of them will cookie cutter their life care plans. And I think that's also very dangerous because I think what ends up happening is that they don't learn all the unique things about your client and their situation. And you need to find someone that will take the time, hopefully not just to talk to the client like in a one hour setting, but then to actually go and talk to the other family members, see what the home's like, see what, what their life is like. Uh, and it's hard, it's really hard to find that, but the, the good ones would do it. And uh, I've just been, that's been a real struggle we've been having is the finding a life care planner that's not just a cookie cutter, but is willing to do the work just like you and I are willing to do the work on our end. Yeah, and I think there's no substitute for that home visit. I, I will not try a case without going to visit the plaintiff at home. Yeah, I won't try any, I won't try a, back when I did whiplash cases, I would try a whiplash case yeah. without meeting a client and their family at the home because yeah. you don't understand what they're going through unless you go to their house and spend some time yeah no substitute michael for time spent right there isn't that seems to be a common theme on this podcast is it <laughs> it's not so much that this is that brain injury science is hard to learn but a lot of it's uh, what we do isn't even that technical it just takes a lot of time toil and effort to do it right and i think the the common theme that i've seen from so many successful lawyers like you is that they're the ones willing to put in the time, toil, and effort, and frankly, learning to say no to, I'm not going to personally handle 100 files, I'm either going to say no to more things or I'm going to get at a law firm when I have other people handle those things instead of me so that I can give my clients the time it takes to do it right. 
and the you know the craftsmanship, the artistry that it takes to reach the upper levels of this profession. Going back to you know we've talked about you know neuropsychologists and all that testing. Do you think the timing of, of when the testing is done as compared to you know when the injury happens and when trial is 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 important? Uh, I think it's very important. So you're going to build a case around the permanence of the injury, and most of the medical literature, including defense witnesses, um, are, are going to say that you can't tell whether the injury is permanent until it's been at least 18 to 24 months after the injury because there's going to be some measure of improvement. There's going to be significant improvement in the first 6 to 12 weeks following the injury and, and still a great deal of improvement in the next year. And so, frankly, until you get to 18 to 24 months out, you don't know what you're left with. And so ideally there's been some kind of um, neuropsychological evaluation done at 6 to 12 months post-injury and then maybe a repeat one done at 24 months post-injury. And the reason it's important to have that done at 24 months post-injury is because if you're going to measure brain function and then make a lifetime projection about that brain function, you need to do it uh, at a point when all the experts are going to agree that whatever they've got is what they're likely to have for the rest of their life. Well, that point is 18 to 24 months after. So if you're going to do any kind of functional testing, that could be neuropsych or it could be like uh, magnetoencephalography that's going to show brainwave activity, that functional testing needs to take place late enough after the injury so that your experts can make projections based on it. So I think timing's super important. You got, you know, kids, you have working people. The What are some of the educational and vocational aspects of TPI that we have to think about for our clients. Yeah, so people often ask me, what kind of experts do you need for these cases? I end up with eight to ten experts on the plaintiff side for each of my cases. Ouch. And if it is a school-aged child, then I usually have an educational expert. Um, and we're looking for uh, what kind of Section 504 accommodations are there and what do they need to do for that child as they age with this injury and I think that's a valuable witness. Uh, that person can also go in and talk to all the teachers. By the way, if you're a lawyer representing a school-aged child, you need to be talking to teachers. Yeah. They're going to be some of your best witnesses. Um, similarly, if you have a work-aged person, then you need to look at how does the injury affect their job, uh, and you probably want to talk to a vocational expert who has expertise in dealing with TBIs. Um, there's a uh, well-known study out there that says that um, even people with mild TBIs, they have significantly more unemployment over their work life expectancy compared to the non-TBI population. And the reason is they look fine, they look normal, they can interview and get jobs, but they have difficulty keeping the jobs compared to the unbrain injured population because, because of the brain injury. Uh, they might tell their boss to go screw off you know, or they might get irritable or lash out at a coworker, or they might reflect other behaviors that would make them not ideal employees, so they might get hired and then fired. And so I was able in one case to prove that somebody would have, over the next 40 years of their work life, they would have an extra 15 years of unemployment compared to somebody without that injury. Those can be pretty significant vocational losses. I found another advantage of the educational expert is that they will work. You know, a lot of the parents don't really know. It takes a lot of knowledge and time to, to advocate through that system to get the, the children the accommodation they need. And so when you get the kids 
the combination they need in the school. But the other thing is you educate the school that this isn't Johnny being bad, or it's not that Johnny is dumb. It's that Johnny has a TBI, and you know the, the teacher review the same symptoms as very differently if it's this is a kid that's a problem kid in my class versus this poor kid had a brain injury what can we do to help him uh and and help uh, deal with the fact that he sometimes has some problematic behavior and i found that that the way the school records read when the teachers understand what's going on versus when they just think this is a problem child is a uh, night and day well and having accommodations uh, section 504 accommodation for a brain injury that's probably coming into evidence yeah. at the trial and it's pretty impactful that the school officials and everybody involved with this child thought it was important enough to to reframe the way that child's school experience would be um, I just think it helps to, to prove the case absolutely and win lose or draw the kid is going to be more likely to have the best possible educational outcome when the schools know what's going on and are trying to accommodate the child to provide the kind of learning that a child with that brain injury can do. So it's you know it helps you win your case, but it also you know we're we're doing good for the for the client no matter what happens. Which especially with pediatric cases, we really have that responsibility. I want to kind of move on to trying them. Uh, so you've got all these experts, you've got all this advanced scientific stuff. How do you present this to 12 ordinary folks in a way that they'll understand it and be moved by it? That's a challenge. Um, so let's start with, I think it starts in Vordire, and it depends on what your case is about, but I, I like to spend most of my time in jury selection talking about the bad things that can happen as people age with a brain injury and things that we don't didn't really know about a decade ago and i'll talk about uh perhaps that movie concussion with will smith or i'll talk about uh cte and football players and how um, their brain scans were normal and then they autopsy the brain after the suicide and they realize uh, how abnormal the brain was it's was just beyond the ability of our modern medicine to see it on an mri scanner um, and then when we're trying the case, when we get to the, I usually like to lead off with something having to do with liability, right? But when we get to the part of the case dealing with the injury, I want to start with whatever my most objective, verifiable evidence of brain injury is. And so that's going to be an MRI that shows blood on the brain, or it's going to be a DTI that shows a disruption of fiber tracts, or it's going to be an MEG scan that shows abnormal activity. And the reason I usually like to lead off with that is because it's now going to f cast the rest of the trial in the light of not, is this real, but this is real. And now let's view all the rest of the evidence through that lens. Right. Um, and I, I usually do not like the plaintiff, the brain injury plaintiff, to be in the courtroom at all. Um, they're not there for jury selection. They're not there for any of the evidence in the case. Um, and I usually have other people talking about them. And then that person comes in, the victim, comes in usually at the end of the case. Uh, but after all the evidence has already come out that has led to the inescapable conclusion that this is a significant brain injury. 
Um, I will I will always advocate that people should have their plaintiff uh, depositions and brain injury cases videotaped. Uh, if the defense lawyer doesn't videotape it and you're the plaintiff lawyer, videotape your own client. And the reason is, over the course of that deposition, the client may display symptoms that are consistent with their brain injury. Uh, I've got a countless number of examples of this that I've used in my cases, and it might be they might blow up at the defense lawyer, or they might forget where they went to high school, or have trouble answering some kind of question that they shouldn't really be having trouble answering. And so I'll usually make little deposition clips, 30 to 60 second clips out of those, and I can introduce my plaintiff to the jury early in the case through my experts. So I'll play, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I'm gonna play this deposition clip of, of John, and I'm gonna ask you some questions about it. And then I'll play the clip, the jury gets to see John, not remembering whatever it was he was supposed to remember. And then I'll ask the expert, you know, tell us what was significant about what we just saw. And I've usually done that enough with enough different clips and with every single expert in the case that by the time the jury finally meets the plaintiff, they feel like they already know them. Yeah. Um, and I think we run the risk as lawyers, especially in significant injury cases, if we bring our client in, if it's a mild TBI, they look normal, and the jury's going to look at them for two weeks looking normal and think, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah. Um, and if it's a serious injury case, they're going to get um, just kind of immune to the seriousness of the injury if they have to look at them every day for two weeks. Yeah, we had a really, really bad burn case. The poor man was burned over about 70% of his body. And when you first meet him, it's shocking. I mean, it's just, you don't even want to look at him. And, uh, you know, I was explaining to him why I didn't want him there for his trial. And I said, look, when I first saw you, I was like, oh, my gosh, this poor guy. Now that I've known you this long, I don't even notice your burns when I talk to you. I have to, like, focus on them because you're just you're able. You're not some burn guy. And if you let the jury see your burns for two or three weeks, they're not going to see them anymore. They're just going to see you. And that's really not good for your case. Yeah. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. What's some other... Other um, things you're thinking about. How about visuals? What kind of what's your visual strategy in these cases other than the imaging? Yeah, so it's show and tell, right? Every trial, regardless of whether it's a brain injury case or not, needs to be a show and tell. Um, so I'm I'm still using a combination of poster boards and uh, visuals that we're showing on a screen. So I've usually got the neuroradiologist going through, um, showing uh, the images from the MRI or whatever we have. Um, and I usually have them showing some kind of uh, demonstrative uh, video as well that's kind of a, a zooming up uh, beyond an MRI's ability to see that shows gray-white junction and shearing, and, and then I usually have poster boards uh, that show coup contra coup and what's going on in the brain, and I've got lots of examples of those, but um, I like to have those poster boards up in the courtroom. I like them to be there. Even when the witness is done talking about them, they're still sitting there jury can still see them if the defense lawyer turns them around it just brings attention to the fact that the defense <laughs> lawyer doesn't want the jury to see him yeah if the defense lawyer doesn't turn them around then the jury's still seeing him i mean it's a it, even with all the technology we have there's no substitute for some good poster boards i've gone back from almost all uh, digital to to using a mix and using a lot lot more boards so you have these losses, you know, you have the unfortunate word mild, which really does more the, with the initial loss of consciousness than any kind of permanent effect uh, that you have to get past. But I mean, 
you can have all this evidence and a jury can give $100,000. You can have all this evidence and a jury can give $16 million. What is it you think that you've done that has gotten the, the eight-figure verdict rather than the six- to seven-figure verdict? So we're trying to paint a portrait of a life that is completely disrupted forever. And so in some respects, it's kind of like a wrongful death case. The, the person that existed before the brain injury died, and now we have a new person. So the theme often is, um, we did this with one case, we had a um, 16-year-old boy that was injured in a trampoline park. Um, and we referred to him throughout the case as Old Max and New Max. Old Max was the life of the party, socially, you know, New yeah. Max is. And I think if you approach your brain injury cases like that, that you have two different people, one before injury and one after injury, um, you just have to make, you have to develop your evidence in a way that that carries this injury with them through life. Um, I, I'll give you a few tips on how I try to do that. Sure. All right. Number one, you know about the classification of brain injuries based at the moment of insult or shortly thereafter as being mild, moderate, or severe, right? So mild is, is one that may or may not involve loss of consciousness, and if there is loss of consciousness, it is less than 30 minutes in duration, according to the American uh, College of Rehab Medicine. That's one of the most famous definitions. There's lots of other definitions. They all more or less say the same thing, which is a mild injury is one where there are no um, abnormal findings on MRI or CT scan. Um, and a mild injury is also one where the post-traumatic amnesia is less than 24 hours. So post-traumatic amnesia is, is your ability to resume laying down a continuous positive track of memory following the injury. Um, so what does that mean? So a lot of people, if you start, if you focus as a lawyer on trying to pin down post-traumatic amnesia, uh, you'll usually find that your victim can remember bits and pieces of things like, ah, I kind of remember being in the ambulance. I remember the ride to the hospital. I remember grandma coming to see me at the hospital. Um, but if you dig into it a little bit more, you'll find that that's kind of fuzzy and they didn't resume a continuous track of positive memory until maybe longer than 24 hours after the injury. Um, and if you can stretch that post-traumatic amnesia to more than 24 hours, you no longer, by definition, have a mild TBI case. You have a moderate TBI case. Well, if you have a moderate TBI case and you look at all the literature, um, the long-term outcomes for people with moderate TBIs, they're far more likely to have early-onset dementia than people with mild TBIs. And so... What I'm doing in my cases is I'm trying to develop evidence that, um, from any source possible, that my client probably falls into a moderate TBI as opposed to a mild TBI. And then with that evidence, uh, my other experts and life care planners can look at the medical literature and they can make long-term projections. And often we'll see a projection that includes um, early onset dementia in the 50s or 60s. Uh, as opposed to, you know, in the testimony often will come out something like this. Um, uh, Jim, because of his brain injury, uh, is going to start needing uh, assistance and home health care beginning at age 58. And his brain at age 58 will be like it would have been at age 78 had it not been for this injury. Um, so we're, and you can do that with the medical literature if you can show it's a moderate injury, especially if you can show that there's uh, bleeding within the brain, 
um, you, you increase your chances of being able to justify um, a life care plan and justify this uh, proof of, of a person having age-related declines that are attributable to that injury that occurred. Tom, this has really been educational. I know I have like several pages of notes I've taken and I'm going to use in my practice and I hope other people have too. If somebody has any more questions or they want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Uh, probably the best way is to email me, tom at crosleylaw.com. That's C-R-O-S-L-E-Y-L-A-W.com. They can also call my office, uh, 210-529-3000, or just look us up on the web. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've learned a lot, and I look forward to the next time we meet. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us today on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show with Tom Crosley. I appreciate your support of the show, and I love hearing from you. So please continue contacting us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I'd also like to welcome you to join our private group, Trial Lawyer Nation-Insider Circle on Facebook. This new group will allow you to hear about podcasts before they air, interact with the show to suggest speakers and questions, as well as get a sneak peek at some behind-the-scenes moments. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.